morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks. Test, test. Good? Awesome. All right. Good morning. Um, yeah, just like Drew said, my wife Anna and I have been members here for about two and a half years, and it's really been amazing. And this is my second time up here on a Sunday, and every single time it's been nothing but a privilege. And last time I had about a 12-hour window to be able to prepare. Um, this time, uh, hopefully it's a little better because I had three months to prepare. But you guys were just incredibly nice. Just just overwhelmingly positive feedback, so much that I'm pretty sure some of it is embellished and, you know, <laughs> smidgen of untruthfulness, but nonetheless, it's, it was really nice because I, I, was, I was so nervous. I didn't know how it was going to go, and, you know, I, I watched myself on YouTube afterwards. I thought it was a solid 5 out of 10, but, <laughs> you know, this time we helped prepare a lot more, so with that... Today's message comes from Luke 12, but before we actually dive into the message, we're going to start with a short story. And the story is about a Japanese intelligence officer, and his name is Hiro Onoda. And Hiro Onoda was a Japanese soldier who fought in World War II, and actually in December 26, day after Christmas in 1944, he was given an order to go to a place called Lubang Island, the Philippines. And he was stationed there because the Japanese forces wanted to capture that island and have it as a strategic um, Air Force base. But the thing was, he and all the troops that were stationed there, they were given a very strict order. You, under no circumstances, are ever allowed to surrender. And we're going to see in the story that he really took that to heart. Because just a few months later, in February of the next year, U.S. forces came and took over the island. They effectively killed all the soldiers, Japanese soldiers, stationed on that island or captured them, except for Onoda and then three other of his comrades. And what they did after, you know, their base got taken over, they went up in the mountains, established another base camp, and they hid out there for as long as they could, continuing their guerrilla operations and trying to disturb U.S. forces. Well, as we know, in just six months later, in August 15th of 1945, the Japanese surrendered to the U.S. And the war for the Japanese was effectively over. But that news never really made it to them. And so they continued doing the things that they were doing from on top of the island, or on top of the mountain. Two months later, the locals tried to deliver them some newsletters. They tried to say, hey, the war is over, the Japanese have surrendered, you can come down now. But they read it, and they said, this is a clever ploy by the Allied troops. We're going to keep doing what we're going to be doing. And then a month later, uh, the Japanese army actually dropped flyers on, uh, from airplanes all over the island for them to see that said, hey, you can come down now. The war is over. But once again, they thought to themselves, this is just another clever trick. We are not going to surrender. And this held out for seven more years, until to the point where this time, instead of just command orders, what they dropped from airplanes was notes from their family members and pictures of their family members saying, please come down, we want you to come home. But once again, they said, this is another clever ploy. We're not going to surrender. And they held out for 20 more years. 
on top of all of that. And within the 20 years, like I said, Onoda had three other comrades. One of them surrendered, went home. The other two got killed in their operations. And it was just by himself up there. And finally, in 1974, Onoda's commander from World War II, who was long into retirement at that point, he came out of retirement, traveled to Lubang Island in person, and found him in the mountains to deliver a handwritten surrender note. And almost 30 years since landing on that island, Onoda made it back home. The story itself is almost a little silly and really sad, but it's true. But what I believe happened to Onoda is a cruel example of disassociation from the obvious. See, Onoda so strongly believed that the belief or on the belief that his home nation would never surrender. You know, that was the order that he was given. And similarly, in our passage today from the book of Luke, Jesus is addressing the same phenomena in the eyes of the Pharisees. See, because the Pharisees, they also had a very strong belief of who the Messiah was supposed to be and exactly what he was supposed to do. So much so that even when the Messiah is talking to them, they, disassoci they disassociated themselves from what is obvious and right in front of them. So we're going to start reading from Luke 12, verse 49, and this is Jesus addressing a, a crowd of followers as well as a crowd of Pharisees. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is accomplished. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Please join with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this gracious opportunity you've given to me to be able to just speak on the ways that this word has been pressing on my heart. I pray that you bless my mouth to be able to deliver your message in a way that is fruitful, and also pray for the ears of all who are listening to this, that it's something that lands on their heart and it becomes a harvest that's bountiful. In your name we pray. So the main idea, or the one thing for today, is what has God been placing in front of you? Mixing it up a bit. It's a question, not a statement. What has God been placing in front of you? It's a pretty short passage today, so we're going to try to go, you know, chunks of verse by verse to try to understand what exactly is the message that Jesus is trying to deliver. So the first section, verse 49, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. When I was reading through this, the first question that came to my mind is, what is fire? Specifically in verse 49. Because it's a pretty pivotal part of the verse. It's something that Jesus is delivering. So for us to be able to understand what exactly is Jesus bringing helps with understanding his message. 
And fire, there's a bit of a context clue, happens to be something that's brought by Jesus after he undergoes a baptism. Baptism, we may typically think, is some sort of a water baptism that we see on Sundays, or specifically the water baptism that Jesus undergoes through John the Baptist. But actually, in this case, that's not exactly what it's talking about. And we know this because Jesus says it's a baptism that he still has to undergo, as in it's not yet happened. But this point in the ministry, that baptism, the water baptism, has already happened. So what specifically could it be? Uh, One of the Synoptic Gospels, Mark, actually has a verse that explains this a little bit better. So in Mark 10, the context of this is, this is right before Jesus enters Jerusalem, where through that process, um, he's captured by Roman soldiers. Uh, James and John actually asked Jesus this question. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Then Jesus replies with this verse right here, Mark 10, 38. He said, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And so it becomes a lot clearer in this context when he says this baptism he is about to undergo, as well as the cup that he has to drink, it's referring to his death, specifically his death on the cross and the sin that he bears for us through that process. So what exactly is this fire that happens to be coming after Jesus' death? And it is a little bit unclear from the context, but not because we don't really know what it is, but because the New New Testament typically uses fire in two different ways. The Greek word for fire signifies either a judgment or purification. And both of these actually fit into this context because Jesus is bringing about a cleansing fire. um, So that's the, sorry, that's the purification. A cleansing fire that restores the righteous and brings about a scorching fire, that's the judgment, that subdues all evil. And for both of these contexts, Jesus is its deliverance. And this is why Jesus says what he says in verse 51, when he says he's not bringing about peace, but division. He's bringing about both a purifying fire as well as a scorching fire. One for the sheep, one for the goats. One for the crowd that follows him, and one for the crowd that denounces him. And he speaks about this division a little bit in our next section, starting from verse 53. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is actually a really interesting verse. And it's not because of this vivid imagery that he paints or how divisive and confrontational that the wording sounds but it's actually because Jesus is purposefully referencing the prophet Micah. Um, If you recall, prophet Micah, the book of Micah, is one of the minor prophets, and it's found near the end of the Old Testament. And Micah prophesied about Jesus 400 years, or more than 400 years, before Jesus. In Micah chapter 5, he foretells of a messianic king. And this king is going to come from the line of Judah, the same line of family that Jesus comes from, and he's going to be born from the town of Bethlehem, the same town that Jesus is from. And this new king is going to rule over New Jerusalem, and he is going to reunite all the Jewish exiles. And through this king, God is going to enact justice, the scorching fire, and remove evil from the world, the purifying fire. So that's what Micah 5 says. But then in Micah 7... Jesus talks about, or sorry, Micah prophesies about this division, this great division that's going to happen after the coming of the Messiah. 
In Micah chapter 7, it reads, Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. So, direct parallel. Obviously, it becomes a bit clear that Jesus is directly referencing Micah. But it's not exactly clear why. Why is Jesus talking about this division that's coming? And it's, again, for twofold. Because, again, the crowd has two people, the followers as well as the Pharisees. So for the followers, it's more of a warning. He's saying, I am about to go do these things. I'm about to go on the cross. I'm about to have my baptism. But afterwards, there is this division, this great division is, that is going to come. And it's going to come from people of your own blood. It's going to come from people of your own tribe and your own nation. They are going to persecute you, and they are going to come after you because of what you believe. But stand strong because I've accomplished it all. And that's for the followers. Now for the Pharisees in the crowd, this is an announcement. Because remember, the Pharisees are people who are very well versed in the law. They have a great understanding of Old Testament scripture. And because of it, when Jesus is essentially saying, he's quoting from Micah, he's making an announcement that I am the Messiah. I am the king that you've been praying for for over 400 years. And Pharisees, when they hear this, this itself serves as a sufficient declaration of the coming of Christ. But even when manifest with such clear signs, they still fail to recognize the kingdom of God that's right in front of them. And we know that they don't receive this message because Jesus rebukes them about this exact same thing in the next section. In the last part of the verse, or in the scripture, it says, He said to the crowd, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, It's going to rain. And it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, It's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Does anyone know who David Lee Roth is? Yes. Yeah, he's the lead singer of Van Halen. And he has a pretty funny story about when he's in Vegas. He is just going around the hotel, just walking about, and he happens to hear his own music being played really loudly in a ballroom. So he goes and, you know, he knocks and goes in, and he happens to run into a bachelor party. And it's just a big crowd of men, and they are singing and drinking and dancing to Van Halen, just as we all do in bachelor parties. (laughs) And he just kind of moseys on in and joins the crowd. And and he's dancing, but no one recognizes him. And later on, he's politely asked to leave. (laughs) You see, that group of men, they knew his band, They knew his songs, and they even knew the words, but they did not know him. And this is the same frustration that Jesus is facing with the Pharisees and why he rebukes them. He's saying, you know of me, you know my words, you even know what I'm here to do, yet you clearly do not know me. That's why in these words, Christ is telling them, that his power was sufficiently declared for them 
to know the time of their visitation, unless they evaded the open light by deliberately closing their eyes. Perhaps they do not recognize the kingdom of God even when it is manifest by no less clear signs because they were just too devoted to earthly and transitory interest and despised what concerned the heavenly and the spiritual life. And he calls them, in verse 56, hypocrites, directly to their face, because they pretend to be seeking what they did not want to see, even when it was right in front of them. And this same rebuke is now targeted towards us, because how many of us bend our wits and do our best mind gymnastics to continue living in the same manner that we find comfort and complacency in? Is this not the reason why for some of us, many of us who have been going to church for such a long time, that invitation from God on every Sunday, every time you open the book, invitation from God are so meaningless? Because each of us happen to quench the light that's offered by God by giving ourselves to a willing dullness every single day. And this is why we go back to our one thing. What has God been placing in front of you? What is God's invitation in your life that you are blatantly averting your eyes from. Perhaps it's a lingering sin that has established a seemingly permanent residency in your heart. Or perhaps a relationship that you feel is broken beyond repair, but God is calling you to have a bit more hope in. Or perhaps who God is has become completely unrecognizable for you and your life because you are just too busy to read his words. See, we know the Father loves his children and gives life through his words. And my prayer through this message is that you're not guilted into addressing your sin, but rather God is built up and elevated to be the good Father who gives life to the fullest when you, to those that actually seek him. And we know this because Jesus' work on the cross, because of what he does, despite what he says, despite the people that are going after him. This is what he does, because he bore what we deserve because of the love that we will never fully appreciate. And so, today's message, I'm going to end from lyrics from a hymn. Now for the love I bear his name, What was my gain, I count my loss. My former pride, I call my shame, and and nail my glory to his cross. Yes, and I must and will esteem all things but loss for Jesus' sake. Oh, may my soul be found in him, and of his righteousness partake. Thank you.